Every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. Really, this project is to avoid um, demolition of these like beautiful historic homes that have been in Pleasant Street like forever. Shanae Jackson's perspective on this, how there are accusations of this, and there's a history of alleged abuse and officers neglecting prisoners at the Alachua County Jail. These students kind of really felt sad that the pandemic happened during their college years, but ultimately they, they had the mentality of like everything happens for a reason. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Sarah Mandile. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Gainesville's Pleasant Street area is a historically Black neighborhood with a rich culture and families that have called it home for generations. However, with rent and property prices increasing, they have started to experience demolition and gentrification. A department of the city of Gainesville is trying to help preserve their homes and history. Producer Ariana Asperu speaks with WUFT's Anna Harrell on her story about the area and how the city has stepped in to help the community members. So before we get into your reporting on the issue of affordable housing in the historic Pleasant Street area, tell me a bit about the neighborhood itself. Can you describe it to those who may not know about it? Yeah, so it's obviously a neighborhood in Gainesville. It has super rich history. Um, it's known for being the first African-American neighborhood to receive the state designation of a historic neighborhood. So a lot of the houses and buildings date back all the way to 1880. Um, and I got the chance just to kind of walk around and kind of get the feel of the neighborhood. And it's it's beautiful. There's a lot of historic homes and just really cool designs um, on these beautiful houses. Um, and they also have a lot of like local businesses that the community and the um, neighborhood residents can just walk down to the street to, which I think is awesome. I feel like a lot of neighborhoods don't really have that nowadays. So yeah, there's just like a lot of community there. You can just tell all the houses are really close together and it seems very just like a tight knit neighborhood. So yeah. The first thing you bring up in the story is the idea that the people who grew up in this area aren't able to afford housing there anymore. How did we get here? Like, how has the area changed since then to be less conducive to its own residents? I've talked to, well, just like a resident and also some like nonprofit organizations who have noticed that houses and rent prices have recently been going up and they're not really sure why. One of the project managers for a nonprofit organization I talked to. She said she was scrolling on Zillow and she couldn't believe that like some of the housing prices are so high. So I would definitely do some further research into why they're so high right now. But I think that a lot of like historic neighborhoods and stuff like that are experiencing that, that right now because of gentrification. I was talking to one of my um, previous sources from a different story. Her name's Terry Bailey, and she actually lives in Pleasant Street. And while I was talking to her, she was telling me about how Pleasant Street is suffering from gentrification, which is kind of where I first started with this story. And so after doing some research, I found out that it's like the transformation of neighborhoods from low value to high value. So it can look like wealthier newcomers moving to working class neighborhoods. 
for example, it can prevent Black families from renting homes or taking out mortgages in certain neighborhoods. So there becomes wealth inequality, which is a problem. Gentrification can lead to like the displacement of low-income families and like completely transform historic neighborhoods. And to address these issues that you're bringing up and that you learned and reported on in your story, the Gainesville Community Reinvestment Area has created housing programs and other projects to help preserve the area itself. Tell me what these initiatives consist of. I got the chance to talk to like the main project manager for GCRA, not just in Pleasant Street, they're trying to do work um, to protect these historic neighborhoods and keep these communities together, but they're doing it in a bunch of neighborhoods in Gainesville, but they have specific projects for Pleasant Street. Um, And so one of them is My Neighborhood Program. It was created in 2019, and it offers $25,000 to help people purchase a home. So the program offers incentives to people to help cover the costs of moving back to a neighborhood which they grew up in. But Chelsea said the kind of issue here is that the the housing prices are so high in Pleasant Street that people can't even take advantage of this program or get financing for their homes either. So she's talked to a lot of people who want to move back, but they just can't afford it or they can't even get lending. So that's something they're working on right now. I know they're also doing, I think the main project right now is the infill project. Um, So they have purchased a vacant lot within the neighborhood and they're hoping to build affordable housing there. I think they're waiting for the city to give a like you're ready to go kind of thing. But they are hosting a meeting in May actually with like the Pleasant Street neighborhood residents. They have contractors come out to pressure wash and paint um, these like old homes. And the goal is to maintain the value of the house and continue to beautify this neighborhood because really this project is to avoid um, demolition of these like beautiful historic homes that have been in Pleasant Street like forever. People can apply to most of these programs to get help so I know with, with this program, they people can apply through GCRA and people will come out and restore their home for them. So one of the community members you spoke to has lived in the area for four generations. Tell me how he feels about the changes in his historic neighborhood. Yeah, so I chatted with Thomas Hawkins, whose family has lived in Pleasant Street neighborhood for four generations. His great-grandfather was actually born in a house two blocks away from Hawkins' current home in Pleasant Street. Um, when he first moved to the neighborhood, he noticed that there were like eight boarded up houses on his block. And now those houses are no longer boarded. And there has been a great amount of new private home construction, um, which is a good thing. So that's something that he mentioned that he was like happy to see um, some of these houses are getting lived in, getting restored. But along with the benefit of that renewed interest in investment, Hawkins told me that he's noticed the downside of prices in the neighborhood rising dramatically. And that's not really something that affects him right now since he already has bought a house there. But he was just kind of voicing that concern to me, which is something that like helped me realize that this is a story that needs to be told. So you also spoke to Dottie Fabesy, a prominent member of the neighborhood. Can you tell me a little bit more about her and her thoughts on the changes? Yeah, so she is actually the chairperson and secretary of the Pleasant Street Neighborhood Association. Um, And she's currently trying to convince the city to reopen 
um, Northwest 2nd Street, which it used to be a main entrance into their neighborhood. Um, the city closed the street to provide outdoor restaurant seating um, when COVID began. But as COVID is kind of slowing down a little bit, the street is still closed. And she said, she told me that it's just really inconvenient um, for people to have to zigzag around to get into the neighborhood since that was like one of their main entrances into the neighborhood. Um, and she also told me that she believes it's inconvenience for emergency vehicles, um, people on bicycles. And she also said it just doesn't really look very attractive. She's actually lived in Pleasant Street for over 20 years, so she wants this neighborhood to be accessible and affordable. Um, she told me it's just really important to protect their history. That was WUFT reporter Anna Harrell speaking with producer Ariana Asperu on her story about Gainesville's Pleasant Street area. I'm Sarah Mandile, and you're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. We'll be right back. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apotophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. Family members of an Alachua County Jail inmate are accusing correctional officers of abuse. The family is saying officers hurt Courtney Smith while he was in custody, causing him to miss his first appearance before a judge. An internal investigation was conducted and the report concluded that the use of force by the correctional officers was justified. Producer Malia Lydon spoke with Troy Myers from the independent Florida Alligator about the investigation and the family's perspective on this issue. The man, Courtney Smith, his sister sent a tip to my editors at the Alligator and my editors forwarded that to me. And the first step I took was establishing that this man was arrested. He was in Alachua County Jail and looking up his correctional photo, making sure he did exist. And then the next step I took was reaching out to his sister and setting up a phone call interview, asking a couple basic questions. And we got on the phone and she was talking with me about what was happening. She talked a little bit about her brother's mental health issues that he's dealt with his whole life is what she was telling me. He has anxiety issues, PTSD issues. So yeah, I got a really good feel just from that kind of preliminary reporting of what was what I was going into. I talked to the fiance of the man, the sister. I got to briefly speak with the mother of Courtney Smith, started diving into reaching out to the Latro County spokespersons, Art Forgy and Kaylee Bell. And, you know, they talked me through everything. They talked me through the internal investigation report that they completed earlier this month. And they answered all the questions I had. And then I brought those questions and all those answers. And I went back to the family, kind of cross-referenced all the information I was getting, just kind of to fill in the blanks that I was missing. And can you take me through what happened that led to this internal investigation and what the findings of this investigation was? I was sent the internal investigation on April 13th and I read through it and basically the findings were you know the force was justified they 
determined through video camera footage in the jail that Courtney Smith was resisting officers' demands and orders as they were trying to book him or trying to get him to go through the processing, like with fingerprints, photos, and stuff. They said that he was resisting officers, and in order to gain control of Mr. Smith, they ended up having to tase him. They didn't say how many times they tased him, but they said they had to tase him to get control of his hands because he was not handcuffed at the time. Ultimately, it says the inmate Smith was brought under control and the force was justified within ACSO policy and procedures. Can you tell me a little bit more about the various perspectives you heard from? One perspective was from Courtney Smith's fiance. She placed a call to Meridian Health, which is a mental health institution. They deal with patients and stuff like that. So she reached out to them first. And then she said that Meridian referenced her to the non-emergency number for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. So she did that and officers came out to her home and she said, you know, while officers arrived to the house that Courtney Smith was inside sitting on the couch and she thought they were just coming there to help him out, maybe take him to Meridian to get him, I think, a refill on his prescriptions. But then he ended up being arrested as the officers came inside because they found methamphetamine on the couch that he was sitting on. So yeah, that perspective was really interesting because she originally was just looking for help for her fiance. She just wanted him to have treatment and be taken care of as he was going through this mental health crisis. And then the other side of it, the sister is really looking just into the alleged abuse of what's happening to her brother. She's very forward in what she thinks happened. And I'm not saying, you know, this might have happened, this might not have happened, but she's very focused on getting justice for her brother. She keeps coming back to the point where he missed his first appearance hearing because officers wanted to hide the fact that he was beaten. And she's very adamant about the fact that he was beaten while he was handcuffed and shackled at the ankles. But in the report, it doesn't mention that he was shackled or handcuffed at all. They said that they had to tase him to put handcuffs on him. So she's really adamant about the abuse part of it. And, you know, she thinks that he was hidden from the first appearance hearing for a reason so that the judge wouldn't see the abuse. But then in the report, it's saying that Mr. Smith was being held in the mental wing of the hospital, mental health wing, the infirmary of the hospital for a few days to be checked out. And, you know, he did have an order for the mental health unit to come and interview him and check it, check in on him. And along with that is Shanae Jackson's perspective. She is viewing this from a larger perspective of the whole system is kind of rigged against black males, black females. And she keeps going back to the fact that there's a history of abuse within Alachua County Jail. She's looking at kind of the bigger issue. Like this isn't new. This has been happening for years and years. She wants to clean house the system. There's certain officers that she wants to be held accountable. And then there's the mother and you know, she just worried, she's just worried for her son. She just wants to make sure her son is safe. She just wants to make sure that her son is being treated fairly in prison. In the little press conference they did on Facebook, she understood that he did have methamphetamine on the couch with him. It's unclear if it was his or not, but she understands that, you know, there are procedures that officers have to follow. And if there's a law broken, then that would take precedence over the mental health issues, which is what Art Forgey told me. And she just basically wants to make sure her son is okay. And she's most concerned about his safety. What's next for Courtney Smith now that the internal investigation is complete? 
I'll tell you what Art Forgey told me. Now it's just up for the courts to decide. You know, he's in the system now and there's no way of going around it or getting out of it immediately. He has to go through the system. He has to, you know, go in front of the judge and they have to sentence him, I think, still. His arraignment date is set for May 2nd. As of last week, he had a $10,000 bond amount. He was checked out by a mental health unit from the jail. And, you know, they deemed that he did need to stay in the infirmary for an extra night. They allowed him to stay in the infirmary for an extra night, and then he was transferred to general population. So right now, it's kind of unclear how long he could serve for, for possession of a controlled substance. It's basically in the hands of the judge. Is there anything you learned that stood out to you, but may have not made the cut in your story? Mr. Smith called his fiance a couple days after he was arrested, and he was telling them that he was choked out choked unconscious, that he was beaten, that he was tased so many times that he had bitten down on his tongue and his tongue was swollen. And she went and saw him that day for the first time since he had been arrested. And she confirmed that she saw tase marks on his back, on his side. He had cuts all over his face. He had bite marks on his tongue. But in his correctional photo, he only had a black eye. He didn't have cuts all over his face or anything like that. It was he had a black guy in his correctional photo, but unfortunately we couldn't confirm like if he did have marks all over his body or not. Yeah, there's just no other way we could confirm that he had been, you know, choked out, choked unconscious if he had actually bitten his tongue. And, and also I couldn't get comment from Meridian either. I tried reaching out. What would you say is the significance or biggest takeaway from your story? Probably the biggest takeaway, I guess, kind of Shanae Jackson's perspective on this, how there are accusations of this, and there's a history of alleged abuse and officers neglecting prisoners at the Alachua County Jail. But unfortunately, there's just no way that we can confirm this stuff is happening. I mean, the only thing we can do is trust that these people that are doing these wrongdoings are being held accountable. If they're being suspended, even, or if they're being fired, we just don't know. That's kind of the main takeaway is we as citizens aren't going to know if these people are going to be held accountable within the jail. I mean, there's spots in prison where there's no cameras, where they can do whatever they want. I'm not saying that that's actually happening where people are doing that, but there's just no way to know what's going on inside. There's only he said, she said, really. That was reporter Troy Myers speaking with reporter Malia Lydon about family members of an Alachua County Jail inmate accusing correctional officers of abuse. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. Big ideas are reshaping our world from our jobs. If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? to what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. Getting to graduation can be hard for any student, but these past two and a half years have made it even harder. Students have had to adjust to pandemic-era college classes while also dealing with existing struggles of being first-generation, low-income, or non-traditional students. 
Producer Melissa Fato speaks to Fresh Take Florida reporter Melissa Hernandez de la Cruz about her story, co-written with Daniela Savarez, which follows five Florida college students' journeys to graduation. Melissa starts by explaining some of the overarching themes she found in her reporting. The majority of them were first-generation college students, which is kind of like the theme that we saw when we were getting a hold of all these names. We interviewed more than five people, but it was very hard to narrow it down to, to just five because everybody had these great stories to tell. Eventually, we ended up cherry-picking the very unique ones that didn't overlap all too much with the other ones. Like with Ashley Gonzalez, she's from FSU. She's a first generation. Her parents are Colombian immigrants. And she kind of like always knew she was going to go to college. With Jeanette, um, she's from UCF. She is kind of the story that we were most like kind of surprised by. She's a 35 year old mother of three who um, aged out of the foster care system when she was younger, went to college and failed. And then is now back at college and, you know, kind of rediscovered herself and she wants to work towards being a superintendent. So I thought that was wonderful in the stories that, that we chose. Um, a lot of them were also figuring themselves out. Yasmin from UF, she had a hard time finding what major she wanted to be just because she knew she always had to go to college. It was just figuring out what she had a passion for. And we, we saw that a lot, a lot with the other students that we interviewed that didn't make it to the list. A lot of them were like, we don't know what we wanted to do. And kind of their first few years as a first generation college students were just figuring themselves out. And I think one of the biggest quotes that can describe some of these stories is in um, Yasmin's story. She says that it's very easy for first-generation students like herself to allow others' projections and insecurities to kind of dictate their choices. You always have this pressure that you have to be great. And she chose being an English major, which sometimes is not seen as like the best thing, but is something that she really is passionate about and something that can, she can see herself working in. So as you mentioned earlier, a big defining factor of this year's graduates is that their college experience was cut off halfway through. So if they're if they're all traditional four year students, um, they would have the pandemic would have started while they were sophomores. So that made for a very difficult transition into the latter half of their college experience. How did the pandemic factor into their educational journeys? Right. So surprisingly, a lot of these students that we talked to kind of took advantage or just kind of like pivoted their goals during the pandemic. One of the more like <laughs> encompassing ones is um, Carrington Wiggum. She's from FAMU. She's like a legacy <laughs> rattler. And she, she spoke about how um, the pandemic kind of shifted her perspective. She no longer had to do her campaigns because she was a um, the student body president. And before that, she was in the SGA committees and stuff. So before she got into that, she needed to adjust. And because everything was on Zoom, she says a lot more things were accessible. Like she was on talks with the mayor of Atlanta, like from Tallahassee, like she didn't have those like commuting boundaries or like geographical boundaries, if you will. In other stories, people were a little sad that their college experience was a little tainted. One of the questions we asked was, do you have any regrets or would you have done anything differently? And a lot of the things that we came across were 
these students kind of really felt sad that the pandemic happened during their college years, but ultimately they they had the mentality of like everything happens for a reason. Another question I had was that all of the students that ended up in your story are either people of color or immigrants. How do their identities or their experiences as immigrants inform their educational journey and what they decided to do with their college education? Right. So I think that in terms of the, the first generation children of immigrants, because I myself am a child of immigrants and I'm an immigrant myself, I was born outside of the country and I'm a first generation as well. I kind of resonated with some of these stories and it was easy for me to understand their perspective. Um, there's a lot of pressure to, to be the person to get out of like this generational cycle of, of you have to succeed. And Ashley from FSU, she had a great quote and she was saying how as a child of immigrants, there's always one that you know is the person that has to show the face for the family, has to do something, it has to sustain the family in the future. And I was always that kid that had to do something. And that just kind of resonated with me. And I think it resonated with a lot of the other stories we had to tell. Like they knew that the weight was on their shoulders to be better. And in terms of this sense of identity, I think when we talk about um, Devadric Ponder, who's also from FSU, he worked very closely with um, his community. He was the, he was a part of, he was the director for the Coalition of Black Organizational Leadership at FSU, and he was also very heavily involved in the Black Student Union. So I think that, oh, and he also is an African-American um, studies minor. So I think that that sort of identity helped him help his community. He says that he wants to be a voice for the underrepresented. He wants to work in like a student affairs at a SEC university, just kind of helping these students. And I think that's something that also translated with Yasmin. She's also an African-American studies a minor. She loves fostering these conversations and, um, you know, being able to to kind of expand your self-identity, which is what college is really all about. One of the students in your story um, is a non-traditional student, and she arguably has one of the most interesting stories here. Um, I'm talking about Jeanette. It's really difficult sometimes for people to go to college if they're first generation, and it's even more difficult for them to go back if it didn't work out the first time. Could you just tell us Jeanette's story? So she she started her story with she made it to her first college campus in the fall of like 2006. So she was just freshly 18. She had a garbage bag full of clothes and just kind of her personal documents. Later on, she told us that she, um, her mom abandoned her when she was 12 and is a very critical age. She entered like the foster care system and eventually aged out of it, which is what pushed her towards um, college. So within that first year that she was in college, she ended up withdrawing. She joined AmeriCorps to teach, and then she became a mother. She moved to Florida, and she married. She had three kids. And then somewhere along her third child, kind of entering that age of kindergarten, she she decided to return to school um, with the goal of kind of like becoming a teacher. That's what she wanted to do, and started at a state college, at Seminole State College. And she kind of had a bad experience in the sense of like an academic advisor was like, why are you coming back after so many years? And they were just kind of like, you failed once, like you can fail again. But she, she proved them wrong. She got a 4.0 uh, GPA and she transferred to UCF. And once she made it to UCF, she was kind of 
that's where she felt kind of like out of place. She's like, there's, this is a big university. Like, this is not just a state college. There's like traditional students here. But then she kind of found her niche. She became a McNair scholar. She joined research programs. And now she, she's even offered a job at the Seminole um, County um, as a teacher. And one of her best quotes was, we asked her what her greatest achievement was. And she, she said that it was, you know, breaking this generation generational cycle for her children her children are all decked out in night gear the fact that she can see her kids and see that like she's breaking that cycle by being like the first gen student her kids are not going to be that they're going to have a guide they're going to have a roadmap. That was Fresh Take Florida reporter Melissa Hernandez de la Cruz speaking with producer Melissa Beto about her story which follows five Florida college students journeys to graduation. That's all for this episode. For more on each story, make sure to check out WUFT.org. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Melissa Fato, Malia Leiden, Ariana Asperu, and Sarah Mandile. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thanks for listening to our last episode of the semester. We'll be back in the fall with more stories from the WUFT newsroom. I'm Sarah Mandile. Have a good one.